0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting February 12, 2016, we talk with Mexican journalist and historian Angel Gurria-Quintana about the myths and realities of Latin American identity and unity. His article in the new WPJ Winter 2016 issue, cover theme Latin America on Life Support, is headlined Imagining Eden. We'll also point out other top stories in the new WPJ Winter issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandes, who runs the West Wing Reports news service.
1: President Obama says last weekend's launch by North Korea of a missile, which put a satellite into orbit, has sparked talks with South Korea about beefing up missile defense systems. In an interview with CBS, Obama says he was not surprised by the launch itself. This is something that we've anticipated. We've seen a pattern of behavior over them. They're not very good at feeding their people, uh, but they invest a huge amount. Uh, in their weapons systems. The U.S. may now install what's known as THAAD for Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, a missile system that would help protect South Korea and the 26,500 U.S. soldiers that are stationed there. That, in turn, has irritated China. The North Korean launch has become an issue in the presidential campaign with at least one candidate, Jeb Bush, the former Republican governor of Florida, calling for a preemptive attack on North Korea if necessary. Just weeks after December's landmark global warming accord, a big win for the White House, the Supreme Court has thrown a wrench into the deal by halting U.S. enactment of it until legal challenges have run their course. Already, other big countries like China are asking whether America can keep its word. The U.S. is the world's biggest producer of carbon emissions on a per capita basis. In absolute terms, though, China is. And with the summer Olympics in Rio approaching, the US is warning visitors to be careful about the Zika virus. Women who are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant should think twice about traveling to Brazil. The World Health Organization has declared a global emergency over Zika. The White House is now seeking nearly two billion dollars from Congress to combat the virus, which is now shown up here in the U.S. For World Policy on Air. I'm Paul Brandis at the White House.
0: You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Spanish vocalist Natalia Jimenez singing History of a Love, one of Latin music's most timeless boleros, according to the U.S. magazine Billboard. Penned by Panamanian composer Carlos Aleta Almaran, it was initially popularized by Cuban singer Leo Marini, and then taken further by Libertad Lamarck of Argentina, who also starred in the Mexican film of the same name. All in all, a kind of cross-border confluence and harmony, pardon the pun, that has never been as true of life among the nations of Latin America as many outsiders would like to believe. Indeed, the first Europeans there thought they had found the real-life Garden of Eden, according to the article headlined Imagining Eden in the winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal. The author is Ángel Gurria-Quintana, a Mexican historian, journalist, and literary translator now based in Cambridge, Great Britain. And we talked recently about Latin America's multiple images and realities for this podcast. Ángel Gurria-Quintana, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you very much for having me, David. Tell us first about the initial reaction of European explorers, starting with Columbus.
2: Well, it's very interesting, even before Columbus, Europeans were already expecting to find some kind of earthly paradise somewhere across the ocean, uh, always kind of just on the edge of their maps. Um, so when they did make their first landfalls, when Columbus arrived in the Caribbean islands, and then uh, subsequent travelers uh, made it onto the continent's mainland, it's not surprising that they thought this must be the place. And so in 1493, Columbus wrote a letter to the king and queen of Spain, who, of course, had sponsored his first voyage. And he said in his letter that the islands he discovered were so beautiful and their natural riches were so abundant and the climate was so sweet and the natives were so mild tempered that this must be very close to the earthly paradise. I'm quite sure that he was really exaggerating a bit to impress the sponsors of his expedition, <laughs> but it must have struck a chord back home because this is what people
0: hoped to find. And you, said, uh, you also quote some views from the 17th and 19th centuries. Yes, well um, there are several examples of people
2: in later centuries trying to prove that the region was indeed the site of earthly paradise. Uh, Later on, uh, for North American colonists, this sort of blends into the idea of a promised land, which is sort of very powerful. But talking about Latin America, for instance, there is um, an Argentine lawyer, Antonio de Leon, who in the 17th century published a book in which he was trying to prove that the four South American rivers, the Plata, the Orinoco, Magdalena, Amazon River, um, that these four Great rivers were in fact the four rivers mentioned in the Old Testament that used to run out of Eden. Um, I don't know how that would work geographically. He he also said that, you know, in in that case, the forbidden fruit was probably not an apple. It must have been a banana. (laughs) Um, Who knows about that? Um, There was a, a, a Jesuit priest, for instance, Antonil, executed by the Portuguese Inquisition. Because he suggested that Paradise had in fact been in the highlands of Minas Gerais, the very rich gold mining region. Now, I think he was executed basically for for, for reasons of national security. They didn't want people running all over the gold uh, mining regions that the, the Portuguese crown had discovered. So they tried to hush that up. But this goes all the way to the 19th century where... Even in the age of uh, natural discoveries, uh, even after Humboldt, uh, you still get people like an American philosopher, a gentleman called William James, who in the 1850s argued that in Brazil he'd found the original seat of the Garden of Eden. So you can see what a powerful idea this is.
0: And later you say there were efforts to create man-made Edens in the region.
2: Indeed, well, I was trying to connect um,
0: these attempts to find
2: the Garden of Eden to some much more modern attempts uh, to wrestle uh Order and beauty out of nature 's bounty in in the region, um, one particularly striking example for me, uh, very well illustrated by the way in the print edition of uh, world policy institute 's article is uh, the Garden of Xilitla in, in Mexico Sierra madre. Um, which is sort of a mix of, of the surreal and the fantasy, and this sort of you know lush um, landscape in which a mad architect tried to create a semblance of um, of, of, of order. And uh, for people who've been to Rio de Janeiro, for instance, they they may remember the extraordinary garden outside of Rio. Um, uh, conceived by uh, the landscaper Roberto Burle Marx. And so um, I was trying to make a point that uh, this, you know, this search for, for, for the original biblical gardens sort of prevails in, even in the modern era.
0: There was a period when the vision of an Eden-like unity also held sway in the region's politics and diplomacy as reflected in the career of your own grandfather. Talk about that and the leaders who helped shape and embody that ideal.
2: Well yes yeah, certainly um we, I think we could trace this back to at least the 19th century uh, and the vision of people like uh, Simón Bolívar or Andrés Bello. Simón Bolívar, of course, the 19th century general and liberator of various South American and Central American countries, and Andrés Bello, the intellectual. Um, they had a vision of a united region, uh, united against the colonizer, Spain, united by this sort of uh, colonial inheritance, united in language. And uh, this uh, Bolivarian dream, this legacy, I think, has lived on in the political discourse in some countries like Venezuela, for instance, under the the, the venezuela of uh, of chavez. Um, in the 20th century, there were other versions of this sort of pan-American project in notions of Latin American solidarity. Some of these notions took root really in the second half of the 20th century, the 1960s, uh, particularly following the Cuban Revolution. Um, so this brings me, uh, and, and you, you mentioned my, my grandfather, uh, Carlos Quintana. He was... Um, in the late 60s and early 70s, executive secretary of something called the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean (ECLAC). Um, it's based. Uh, its secretariat is based in Chile, and uh, my grandfather was uh, working for ECLAC at a time when these ideas of economic integration in Latin America were still very much in vogue. Um, at the time uh, Eclac was sort of under the sway of a very influential economist who had also been executive secretary, a gentleman called Raul Prebisch, who is widely considered to be Latin America's sort of John Maynard Keynes in advocating things like building up domestic
0: markets and so on. But over recent years, you found it more and more difficult to see a common Latin American identity. True. Um, just to go back to the point about Raúl Brevis, I think
2: one thing that's happened is that this line of thinking, this idea of sort of economic integration um, has become slightly unfashionable or became slightly unfashionable in the later part of the 20th century when you, there was what you could call sort of a neoliberal turn. Um, now, as an observer of Latin America rather than an economist, um, it's become… Fairly obvious to me that, yes, we share a history of colonialism and uh, oppression. Yes, we share a language, generally speaking, uh, no pun intended. uh, But um, culturally, there are quite significant differences. And I really think that it's these differences that ought to be celebrated. And to me, it's the differences that make Latin America
0: more interesting as a region. Let's look at some particular factors for these differences and disunity and some particular countries starting with Mexico and the comment of former President uh, Porfirio Diaz.
2: Yes, um, well Diaz uh, was a Mexican president at the end of the 19th century who managed to remain president for the best part of 30 years. Uh, until he was unseated by uh, a revolution in the early part of the 20th century. And there's a phrase that's attributed to him, though this is disputed, but um, it is thought that he was the one who said, poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States. Now, like all good catchphrases or cliches, um, it is not entirely correct although there's a seed of truth to it. Uh, but it's, it's a good one because it captures, in a few words, some of the dilemmas faced by a country like Mexico, which is um, closer to its Latin American neighbors to the south culturally, but has to contend with a very large neighbor sitting north of the border.
0: And the issue for Brazil, as you see it, beyond the fact that it's, I guess, the only country with Spanish is not its major language, Indeed. Well, uh, Brazil's
2: history makes it quite unique in the region. Uh, Of course, it was colonized by the Portuguese. This means that there were cultural models imposed on it, so different language. Its production models were different, uh, heavy reliance on slave labor, which has shaped the country even today, and its political models were different. So while Bolívar and Andres Vella were laying down their plans for Pan-American unity on a Republican model. Brazil was carving out its own very unique path and was enthroning an emperor. And so it's hardly surprising that Brazil remains such an outlier in terms of uh, areas like foreign policy. They certainly like to do things their own way. Uh, Talk about
0: the way trade often pulls the region apart instead of tying it together as in many other places. Well, trade is, um, this is a point I make in, in the
2: article, often invoked as an instrument for regional integration. In practice, however, what we've seen over the past few decades is the emergence of competing trade blocs. So you have these efforts such as you know, setting up Mercosur in the southern cone or Mexico trying to integrate with the US and Canada through NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, more recently um, the creation of a Pacific Alliance. Uh, in effect, what happens is you see the emergence of trade blocks which are pulling countries in different directions because these trade blocks are competing with each other. So um, perhaps the, re- the the region is simply too large, too vast to operate as a single united entity or to contemplate a single market.
0: Below the level of the trade groups, I was shocked to read how little trade, actual trade there is between the nations of Latin America as compared to other regions. Only 27% of the total trade carried
2: out by Latin America, uh, well, by South and Central America to be specific, is intra-American trade. That means that only 27% of exports by Central and South American countries go to its immediate neighbors. Compare that to what happens in Europe where the figure is closer to 63%, obviously a very strongly integrated European market, Uh, or even with Asia, where the figure is closer to 52%, and you can see why um, the idea of free trade as something that integrates the region doesn't really hold water.
0: Along with the lack of trade, there's a a disputatious tendency across national borders. Remind us of the issues involved. Uh, There are a number of...
2: uh, border tensions in the region. Some of them are historic, some of them are more recent. Uh, Venezuela and Colombia, for instance, uh, recently had a flare-up where Venezuela unilaterally decided to close a part of its border. Um, At the end of last year, uh, there were accusations of smuggling, and uh, suddenly over, um, I think it was about fifteen thousand Colombians living illegally in the border region were evicted so uh, this has led to some um, turmoil there uh, but you have other places where there's some very old disputes uh, Guyana and Venezuela for instance um, they've they've been arguing over borders. But this was recently reignited by the discovery of oil. So uh, something goes back to the 19th century is suddenly reignited. Uh, So these things don't just fade away. Um, I think about Bolivia and, and Chile, they've had a long dispute over access to the sea. Bolivia is a landlocked country and has for a long time had an aspiration of, of having uh, an outlet to the sea. Uh, so this is, this is ongoing. Um, and so we mustn't underestimate the impact that these things have because they flare up suddenly and they play into political
0: agendas and they can be quite disruptive. And of even greater magnitude, you right, is a diversity of domestic discord within many of the region's national borders. So there has been some effective peacemaking. Say more. Well,
2: um, this is, for me, one of the most sort of disheartening um, aspects when, when we think about the, the region. There are some good news stories, for sure. Um, the Colombian government and rebel forces inching their way towards uh, a sustainable peace process uh, has been a good news story of, of last year. Uh, the normalization of relationships with Cuba. I mean, what story that is uh, and it brings some great hope uh, for Cuba's relationships to the region in the year ahead um, but think of some of the other headlines um, Brazil in a political tailspin you have a country where party political gains have sort of sunk the country into a cycle of very disruptive and indeed sort of destructive politics and um, and my attention shifts constantly back to Mexico and the stories coming out of Mexico where despite a program of structural reform, uh, which is very significant and very important um, We still have to grapple with a dis- sort of dismal death toll um, in, in the wake of years of what people call the war on drugs um, Over 60,000 people and counting um, and, of course, the government has just announced the capture of the most notorious criminal, El Chapo, only a few days ago. So, so th- th- there is hope that uh, some of these issues uh, may, may sort of be left behind.
0: One unifying, if also disheartening theme in the region is income inequality. Give us some numbers and comparisons.
2: Well, David, we, we were wondering earlier on what unifies uh, these countries and one answer, sadly, is inequality, very persistent inequality. Uh, we should always be careful when we say these things because, of course, standards of living vary wildly from country to country. And we can also say that the indicators on inequality have been improving uh more in some countries than in others in the region. But overall inequality, inequality of, of income, inequality of opportunity, of access to good services, good education, um, this still remains one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think it's um, it's it's sort of quite bracing to know that while many African countries have uh GDPs which are much lower in many Latin American countries, uh, the differences in wealth between rich and poor remain much, much bigger in Latin America
0: as a whole. Another common characteristic you write is an increasing distrust in institutions and leaders. Give us more detail on that. Well, there's. Um, there's a company called Latino Barómetro, which every
2: couple of years publishes a survey on on public opinion in Latin America and last year's figures were quite illuminating um, if not entirely surprising. Um, for instance, uh, we find that across the region less than 20% or close to 20% of respondents only have any faith in political parties. Uh, not entirely surprising, but still uh, quite shocking. Um, This is only marginally uh, lower than the number of people who believe that their parliaments are any good. Um, And let's not just look at the numbers, but sort of the direction of the numbers. So today, 34% of people across Latin America say they trust the state. Uh, So that's very low, but this is, well, this is, down from 42% the last time they did this so you can see that the tendency is towards general distrust um, there is uh, that there's a great tendency uh, to- so 37% of people uh, say they're satisfied with democracy, uh, again down from close to 43% last time. So this is, to me, one of the um, most striking and slightly alarming figures. Only 37% of people saying that they're satisfied with democracy because when people start stop trusting democratic institutions, there is always a temptation to think that things might be better under alternative forms of government.
0: Still, you wonder if there's a silver lining in the regions, as you say, well-merited lack of trust in institutions, in leaders, in uh, promises to cure corruption that don't seem to uh, ever pan out.
2: Well, yes. I mean, there is perhaps another way of seeing this uh, lack of trust in institutions, and I hope uh, it's the right way. And this is that it might help, uh, or it might lead to a shake-up of institutions, uh, because people will no longer accept corruption. people will no longer accept authoritarian rule. people will no longer accept under-par services. Um, so one hopes that um, emerging from this lack of trust uh, will be a greater degree of accountability. If uh, we think about Brazil, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that a crisis like the one that the country is going through now would not have happened under a government that obstructed the justice process. Um, I think many previous governments would not have countenanced an investigation into allegations of corruption on such a scale. And so perhaps... Uh, it's a credit to the current government that it allowed these investigations to proceed. So um, I guess the flip side of lack of trust is,
0: we hope, a move towards uh, greater degrees of accountability. And you do uh, find other promising signs, one of them embodied in a photograph out of uh, Chile's uh, most recent presidential inauguration right um i mean this this to me was one again one of the very good
2: um signs coming out of latin america it's uh perhaps now slightly out of date in that one of the characters who appear in the photo i I refer to is no longer president but um a, a picture was published uh, um when michel bachelet uh, president of chile um Sort of was sworn in for a second time, and it shows her alongside Cristina Fernandez of Argentina and alongside uh, Dilma Rousseff of Brazil. Three women presidents in Latin America uh, on the Twitter sphere, on you know in 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 the world of memes. This was very quickly. Um, sort of juxtaposed to a picture taken several decades earlier where you had the, the, the presidents of all th- the same three countries who were all uh, military generals, uh, these doddering old generals who, who were terrorizing their countries. And so that um, that process from having um, military governments led by by these old generals to having, um, you know, three young, active, dynamic women leading the same three countries, that to me speaks volumes. It's quite remarkable. Whatever your politics are, uh, whether you agree or you disagree with uh, Cristina Fernandez and Dilma Rousseff and Michelle Bachelet, that to me is, is a sign of true progress.
0: You also note with some irony that Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden was the price for eating from the tree of knowledge while a new quest for knowledge might be leading Latin America to a better if not idyllic future. Talk about investment in science and education today. Well, um,
2: Latin American investment in science and education still lags far behind many countries. Uh, On average, it's close to 0.5% of GDP uh, for the region. Compare that to 2.5% average uh, for OECD countries and their investment in science and innovation. Um, uh, countries like Korea, which a decade ago had indicators very similar to Mexico's. Now that figure is much, much higher indeed. Um, But there is no question, and governments in the region have acknowledged this, that science and innovation is key to regional development, as is indeed uh, greater cooperation in the region in science and innovation. In this, uh, Brazil has been leading the way for decades now, they have one of the, one of the sort of uh, most powerful research councils um, in the state of Sao Paulo and uh, they are building up uh, research capacity in the rest of the country. Um, Mexico, Chile, and Colombia are certainly following suit and all have committed very significant resources to uh, science and innovation, which they acknowledge rightly is uh, the way to solve some of those countries' development problems.
0: So given all the regional problems and prospects, uh, advantages and disadvantages of the global marketplace, uh, uncontrollable pressures from economic dysfunction in China, uh, tanking oil prices worldwide, what do you see ahead for Latin America in whole or in its various parts?
2: Well, um, I think in its various parts would take us uh, uh, sort of, you know, the rest of the day because every t- different countries have uh, will face different challenges. But if if we think of the region as a whole, as you have been doing in this latest issue of uh, of, of the magazine. Um, I, for me, inequality and governance remain the great challenges, and as long as countries in the region don't get to grips with those two issues, the region will continue to be at a disadvantage in the global marketplace and in the community of nations more, more widely. Um, I am a keen observer and, and I'm very interested in the ways in which the region uh, more and more is exerting what we could call its soft power. Um, I'm interested in how countries in the region are emerging, not necessarily as economic powerhouses, but as cultural and educational powerhouses. So how these countries are turning into knowledge economies which will be known for their research excellence, and how some of these countries are coming to be known for their world-class output in the arts and in culture. And I think you only have to see the latest Oscar list and, um, and the film uh, directed by a Mexican, Alejandro González Iñárritu, sort of sweeping the board with nominations to see what I mean. And Helguria Quintana, thank you.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, David. And Helguria Quintana is a Mexican historian, journalist, and literary translator now based in Cambridge, Great Britain. His article in the winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Imagining Eden. Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, you'll find articles about defiance and despair in Venezuela, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.